Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. John Cale has always been a step ahead. He was post-rock while rock was still finding itself, post-punk before punk existed, constantly moving toward a distant beacon only he could see. Born and raised in the mining town of Garnant, Wales in 1942, he took refuge in his local library as a teen, devouring music scores most professionals at the time couldn't make sense of. His passion for the avant-garde led him across the Atlantic to the forward-thinking Tanglewood Music Center in Western Massachusetts. But his burgeoning appreciation for aggressive rock and roll alienated him from his professors there. He found a more welcoming home in New York with Fluxus Luminary Lamont Young's Theater of Eternal Music. Shortly after his move, in 1964, he joined forces with a young New Yorker named Lou Reed to found the Velvet Underground, where he would create drone mayhem beneath Reed's lyrical experiments. But even the world's most progressive rock band was intimidated by Kale's vision, and he once again found himself too far ahead of the curve and out on his own. Since leaving the Velvets in 1968, Kale has been in constant flux, working solo and collaboratively on everything from delicately crafted chamber pop symphonies to pulverizing dronescapes. An outspoken hip-hop fan, he's incorporated trap drums into his own instrumentation, with the same facility he's brought to so many other innovations in sound, devouring them before recreating them in his own image. In January, he shared Mercy, his first full-length album of original music in over a decade. It features an ensemble cast of younger acts, Laurel Halo, Actress, Wires Blood, Sylvan Esso, Animal Collective, Fat White Family, and Tai Chi. He's still ahead of the pulse, pulling some of modern music's most singular freaks even further from the mainstream. With every feature, he coaxes new raw material out of each collaborator and molds it into something more powerful. At the same time, he's gently slowing down, drawing nearer to a place where he'll finally be content to pass the torch. Following Mercy's release, the Fader's Raphael Hellfan sat down with Kale for a brief but illuminating conversation about experimental music's past and future, John Lennon's smoking habits, and making a scene at the movies. Growing up in Wales, uh, you were drawn to sort of like the bleeding edge of Western music, like Berg, Webern, Stockhausen, the Getty Cage, etc. Um, yeah. You had the ears of like a much more seasoned listener. What do you think it was about your upbringing or like just your innate sensibility that led you immediately to music that's like such an acquired taste for everyone else? Good question. I was always interested in the experimental side of things. I was messing around with experiments like at school and I got more satisfaction out of out of understanding some algorithms than than about what a melody meant, so I I got I got used to that. Some people at school they got used to it too, and and they thought it was I was a nut job for <laughs> wanting wanting to go after Berg, Weber, and on all of the twelve tone masters. Yeah, and so I I just kept going, and but then I. I said, this is not all of it. This is not what all of it is 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 meant to be. 
you know, then slowly you progress from what new music is is about today versus new music in, in yeah. a decade. You may you may like what what's happening now, or you may not. I mean, you you find suddenly that in about another two years, you even tastes have changed. Right. And uh, so I was I was happy to follow it. There's a great story of you being sort of like jumped into uh, the cult of rock and roll at age 15 when uh, you went to a screening of Rock Around the Clock um, and it suddenly right. turned into a dance party. Yeah. Was it like a short road from there to like immersing yourself fully in rock music? And like, uh, how did your like new listening habits inform the rest of like your classical education? Yeah, there was it's, it was all very irritating for most of the people <laughs> in my in my school, but everybody was like, it was it was surprising the variety of, of uh, responses. You know, I'd have the, the the ladies of the valley would come, and I would go with with a friend of mine from from high school. I go and sit through the through the film. What we we're trying to do was to not create a stir. You know, this is this is serious stuff. I mean, you know, this is God here. So then. At the as I was walking out of the out of the theater, oh my God! There were the ladies of the valley, <laughs> and and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble now. But <laughs> what happened was the the ladies said that was very very funny, and they they completely turned the tables on me. It was it was very good. Once you came to the states uh, and you went to Tanglewood. Um, like sort of the the rock that sort of seeped into your classical playing got you into some trouble at Tanglewood. And you were deemed like sort of, I think, uh, from what I understand, like a little bit too out there for Tanglewood and too it's, aggressive. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, later, obviously, too out there for the Velvet Underground. So like too out there for what are supposedly like the most out there institutions in their respective forms. I think, I th- I think you put your finger on the, on the, on the next album title. <laughs> too out there. Too out there. Wow, yeah. But so like did those like, you know, whether you perceive them as rejections or not, did they, did those conflicts ever lead to like moments of doubt? Were you always like completely confident in your artistic vision back then? No, never, not not confident. No, <laughs> I mean there was always suspicion about whether I was really seeing this thing from the right point of view. It depends on who you ask. I mean, you know, if you talk to my my music teachers, they would say, "Ah, forget it." You know, he's like, he's just wasting time. <laughs> And um, and then you know a little later on, I suddenly had friends in the music business, and you know you 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 really developed a, a camaraderie with people from your local valley, uh, and and it's such a strange sort of coincidence that you like years later you'd you'd run into them and they said, "Hey, how you doing, man?" You know. <laughs> You still seem to hold a lot of like reverence for like those earliest like Fluxus artists who inspired you and believed in you. Yeah, they were they were they were a bundle of laughs. I mean, really, <laughs> uh, George Richunas, for instance, was was really the strongest guy. I mean, he was he's the one that that got through to a lot of people in New York who who didn't quite understand what was going on. Mm. And um, Yoko brought um, John Lennon by to to meet. George Machunas. George said, uh, Yoko, now look, I know you're going to bring John around to visit, he said, but you got to realize something. He's a chain smoker, <laughs> and I have asthma, 
and I'm I'm tied to my air filter. I can't, you know, have my my breathing interrupted or messed with. And so, so you so, well, what can I do? He said, okay, I will charge you $100 per cigarette. And George was, was there with his tank and, and with his breathing apparatus and his tents. And George was, was a stateless Lithuanian. Right. He made the best of it, but he was, he was trained as an architect. While he was training as an architect, he also learned a lot about well, a very Lithuanian approach to education, but I mean, it was it was a hard scrabble. But he had a following in the people who were building new new buildings in in New York, downtown in New York. He was in a strange position. He built this following up of people who just understood exactly what the, what the new designs were. But um, you know, there were certain code rules. You can't pay people this wage. Because they they've been trained to work for other people, and that you you don't. So it was an unfortunate circumstance that he, because he he wrote his own rules, he was very poorly treated. So his the fact that he was that John was smoking was really the least of least of mm. the problems. Yeah. So anyway, what's one loquacious story? <laughs> right. Yeah. Going back to Fluxus and like the like sort of like those codes of Fluxus. Which principles of Fluxus have you like held with you? You think throughout your career that you learned early on, and which have you like left behind? You think? Oh, that's a complicated question. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a good one, but it's the the subject matter. The the basis of the subject matter was no longer music. What George had had done was he he understood what Lamont was 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 into, mm-hmm. and. It's very clear that there were there were a lot of people in New York that were that were treading the light fantastic, doing different styles of music and styles of living. Stockhausen would would be would be out there doing music with several different keys. There would be one one key for the for one instrument and another key for another instrument. I think it, it came to a point where. Everybody was was experimenting, and it was kind of a a scrum. All all these composers that were really not following methods, compositional methods. And so nobody could really point at what was going on. Nobody could say, well, he, he did that. Because if you said that, you were really marking your territory. Mm-hmm. You really like like telling people this is what I did, and what are you doing? It was a, 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 a complex competition. So yeah, I mean, I guess speaking speaking of fluxus, that's the last my last fluxus question. But the the short film uh, for Noise of You uh, sort of feels like the perfect like document of like intermedia it's not just the music but like the songs and the visuals and yeah yeah yeah, yeah, really intertwined yeah i read in the la times in your la times interview that you said that that's your uh, favorite song on the record am i going too far in like calling it sort of like the core of the record noise of you no it's a very accurate description because for me it was it was my favorite song yeah yeah. it reminded me of 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 a lot of european cities that i that i would visit and especially the ones behind the iron curtain you find all these people there that would that were deprived of information about new music and new art 
they would pop up and we'd say, well, we yeah, we agree with that. that, that that's, that's how we see things developing in the art world. And this is what we want to do. And, of course, the government would come down like, like, like a ton of bricks on them, especially in Prague. There were a lot of homegrown rock and rollers in Prague. Full of character. Your footsteps on the You also have talked about that song as a love song. Um, you know, yeah. In the video, you say, yep, it's a love song twice. You expressed like some ambivalence about writing love songs in the past. Do you think that this is like the purest love song you've written? It, it was the most innocuous love song. <laughs> it's kind of, it, it, it did things without telling you what it was doing. Mm. So it was very subtle and, and kind of enjoyable because of that. I don't know whether that came from a place where I re I remembered it when I was in in Australia, say, and I re I remember that song because it had these elements in it, and yeah, but it it was definitely a love song, and uh, I had no qualms about owning up. At the end of that video, you say, uh, I want to be the one to hand you the future starting now. And that, I think, could be sort of read as a comment to like all of your younger collaborators on the record. Like, I don't mind that at all. I, I don't mind <laughs> that at all. Yeah. Do you, are, are these like the artists you think you feel like most comfortable handing the future to? Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly would. And there's like, and there's a note across the screen in the video, not to harp too much in the video, um, about Wise Blood. That looks like yes. it says like her classical training reminds me of my blending of the two worlds. Can you expand on that a tiny bit? Like, do you see Natalie as like in particular as a as a kindred spirit? Well, she was very good at at, at preserving both of them. Yeah, and, and, and they both well fed on both sides of the of the artistic spectrum. So I, yeah, I mean, I I, I appreciated that. The collaboration between you two, Story of Blood, which comes next in the record, is like another real showstopper. I love that like you're rarely directly harmonizing with her. It's more like you're sort of orbiting each other. Is that like an effect that you were going for? No, I wasn't going for it. It just happened. I mean, it's, <laughs> some of the best things happen by accident.
a lot has been made about like your appreciation of of hip hop at large and trap beat trap beats um in particular. Yeah. And I think and I think like Story of Blood is the song of the record where like maybe those are where you best integrate those trap elements, particularly like the machine gun hi hat. It's a situation that it, where it shouldn't work, but it really does. And I'm wondering if you draw uh, inspiration on any particular producer for that one. Well, I'm I'm always listening to Kendrick Lamar and a lot of those the new artists are really you know they stuck to their guns and i mean i i, I love snoop and and and, and hmm. dre but um Earl sweatshirt has a strange and wonderful atmosphere about him back to like your voice because that, that's not something i want to ask a bit more about related to wise blood's voice i'm wondering like what, what what your vocal training is because i know you have very intense like classical viola training but i've never heard much about your vocal training and i think it's like your voice is like one of the things that stands out as like something that's remained somewhat of a constant in like your very fluctuating career yeah well it's fluctuating vocal mm-hmm. it's just shifting shifting the furniture on the on the, on the titanic because i i always I get bored with musical developments really easy, but I also get a lot of I get a kick out of, out of listening to all the new the new stuff that's going on, and they're they're always giving me a kick in the butt. I mean, not that I speak to them about it, but I mean, I I, I draw from them what I what I appreciate. You've got one of those voices I think is like really recognizable across form. While you're obviously vastly different artists from him, um, I, I sort of sometimes think of your career in parallel with Scott Walker's, um, and he's another you know fiercely. That's very like, funny. You yeah, because <laughs> a lot of people in England kind of said that. <laughs> um, yeah, I've never heard you talk about him, so I'm curious, like what, I, I, what whether yeah. if you like drew drew inspiration from him, if he drew inspiration from you. Like I don't know anything no. about the two of you together. <laughs> no, I, I I don't. I I need. It was one of those shady partnerships, not partnership, it's the wrong word. <laughs> we didn't know each other well enough to, to really have a partnership. So, yeah. But it happened in London, and it happened when I was on island. I, I suddenly found myself listening to people talking about Scott Walker and this. That they were really noticing uh, stuff about his style of production. Because I was moving around, I left London around the time that I think he... He popped up, and I really didn't get too much of an education in 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 that in, in Scott's direct direction. I mean, but mm. I, I mean, I certainly went looking for it, but I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on it. That's why it was, it was such a strange occurrence to have a conversation about someone he never met. Yeah, you know? yeah, I guess so. Just like ret- returning to, you know, the fluxus theory is like art as a point of like on a continuum rather than like a destination or a goal to be reached. Do mm-hmm. you look back on any of your projects as like one opus or is like the next project, the one you're working toward, always like the most representative I, of the I essence the, of John Cale? I, th- I think the last one. Okay. <laughs> well, then that's all I've got. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Take care, man. Yeah, you too. That was John Cale talking to The Faders' Raphael Helfand. Cale's new album, Mercy, is out now via Domino and Double Six Records. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com 
And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're on the new live radio app, Amp. Download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.